welcome to the Dr. Lori Marvis podcast. And today I'm so excited because I have John Pierre. Um, those of you who haven't heard of him, he's worked with um, such people as, you know, Ellen DeGeneres and Pamela Anderson and just some amazing people um, as far as a celebrity trainer. How are you today, John? Very good. Thank you. Thank you for coming and taking some time out of your day. And the fun thing is that you're actually here in person, so I get to actually, instead of looking at a screen, I'm actually get to talk to you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Because it's always fascinating to people how you came to be, you know, maybe a plant-based person or an individual who prefers to eat just um, with no animal products. But yours is kind of an interesting story. Can you share that with us? Sure. Well, I've been plant-based for over 30 years, so I started around high school, so uh, early 80s. And uh, for me, it was once I understood that uh, what I was eating was actually coming from an animal, whether it was milk or meat, that I, I stopped doing it instantly. I just couldn't believe it took me so long to figure it out. So for me, it was an ethical reason that I became vegan. And then I started living a vegan lifestyle. So I always say there's a difference between being plant-based and vegan. Plant-based is more of a dietary thing, and vegan is a lifestyle. So I, I have a tendency to use the term plant-based, but for me, vegan is... is I, the reason I started eating plant-based was for vegan reasons. And what kind of resources do you have back in the early 80s or in the 80s to help you transition your Not life? Not much. There, was, there wasn't even actually a soy milk back then. Eden soy was just coming out. <clears throat> so they only had um, a powdered soy milk, soy quick, which was basically just um, ground-up soybeans. And you added it to water, and it was something they probably could use at the poison control center to make you vomit because I tried it once, and that was it. So, And there wasn't really other processed food, so there was a burger called a mud burger, which was like ground-up carrots and sunflower seeds and stuff like that. That was back then, that was all we had. So, so there was, it was pretty much what I call a hippie diet, so fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, beans, peas, you know, lentils and, and uh, potatoes, and there was breads and things. So it was actually a pretty healthy diet. But the problem was what, is as technology started getting you know, more up to speed and more processed foods start coming out, then the diet moved away from fresh fr fruits and vegetables and got more into processed foods. Mm. So I did start eating some processed foods because, again, I, I was for me it was ethical and we didn't know so much about health. Mm. But they, um, they, um, well, we didn't know any better, so that's why we started eating a lot of those foods. But wow! And as far as your transition into the training side, your fitness, how did that take off? Because that's also very interesting. Yeah, well, I've been, you know, let's see, I've been plant-based for over 30 years and teaching nutrition and fitness close to 30, probably about 25, 27 years, something like that. And my background's really in geriatrics. I was the first person to really create brain-building programs for seniors based on a plant-based diet, nutraceuticals, and then, you know, kind of ancient therapies like aromatherapy and color therapy, and then different fitness, I, you know, like boot camps and agility ladders we used and balloons and bubbles to develop new neuroplasticity and things like that. So just the fitness thing was just something that I was trained in, and I have lots of different certifications in fitness. So I've been doing that for a while. So as far as working with different individuals like Ellen and Pamela, how did that kind of evolve? Were you in California, oh. or how did that? Uh, I'm from Chicago. It was okay. just that I was known in the fitness field, but I was okay. also known in the plant-based world. Oh, so once people kind of understood, you know, that I was I was working in L.A., they they just I basically I, I never advertised, so I just got the calls. So sometimes I'd be working with certain clients that knew different celebrities, and the client would get great results, and they just start talking about me, and so people would call me. 
That's, those are the best referrals, self, you know, right. b- words by mouth. So now you have a lot of other projects. You're a very busy individual. So um, please tell me, you know, about the um, sanctuary project that you have going on. Sure. We're trying to open up an animal sanctuary and a retreat center and pretty much looking all around the United States, but predominantly in Colorado. Um, you know, if somebody was to donate land or property somewhere else, we'd go. But basically we're looking to, to rescue laboratory animals, predominantly like dogs, and uh, maybe cats and bunnies, and then some farm animals, and then have a retreat center so we can teach classes on plant-based eating and vegan lifestyle and composting and recycling and organic gardening. And then eventually, if we could get the funding, we'd like to have some housing on the property for the work that I do with um, the kids that have been rescued and trafficking. We'd like to be able to bring some of the kids on, have a place to transition before they get on with their life to to be with animals and heal, because a lot of these kids obviously don't trust anyone, nor nor should they, until they've earned their trust. But they still need to be hugged, and, and they need to touch, and they need to feel you know, close to someone or something. And animals are a beautiful um, you know, kind of transitional uh, item for them. How many acres are you looking for? Well, we'd like to have at least five acres, but the more acres that you have, the more wildlife that can be preserved. So in other words, you can just leave that land for animals so it's untouched, so there's not more development there. Okay. And, and so anywhere in, in Colorado in specifics? Yeah, we're mainly looking at Colorado because that's where we have a lot of volunteers and staff. But, I mean, if okay. somebody donated, you know, their property that their grandmother left them somewhere else, that might be something we would do. Okay. Fantastic. And then you mentioned you're, you know, working with kiddos that have been, you know, rescued from sex trafficking and stuff. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. I, w- I work with ProjectChildSave.org. And that's an organization that literally, you know, does rescues of children all around the world. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of these children were stolen from their families, um, you know, into sex trafficking. And, uh, you know, these are little kids, you know, five, six, seven, eight years of age. And some of them are being forced to have, you know, sex, you know, 10 to 15 times a day. So Project Child Save, you know, it costs them about a $200 a child that they can rescue them and get them into a home and, and, and safe again. So I work with that that particular team and organization all the time. Okay. And that can be found at projectchildsave.com? Uh, dot org. Dot right. org. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of speaking as well, and you talk about especially women and athletes, and you have books and things. Can you elaborate on what you speak about when sure. you go? Well, my places? first book is, is, is called The Pillars of Health, and that's available at johnpierre.com. And basically, that's just a book um, on everything I've taught in the last 30 years. So it's plant-based nutrition, uh, exercise, or what I call movement, um, enhancing cognitive functioning, which is my specialty. And then the most important are the last two chapters on love and compassion, which ultimately are really what veganism is. It's teaching uh, the core of what we call a himza, which is compassion and reverence for all beings. So that was my first book. And then my second book is called Strong, Savvy, Safe, which is a guide to self-defense, safety, and empowerment for anyone, but particularly for women. And it's not so much just physical self-defense. It's more emotional and situational awareness and things like that. And then I basically, I'm at conference after conference, you know, plant-based conferences or vegan conferences and Lloyd's conferences and uh, fitness conferences just teaching and then i still see clients you know one-on-one and then i do a lot of phone consults so mm-hmm. i still work with people in europe and around the country via the phone or skype oh wow so mm-hmm. how many conversations or, or lectures are you giving a year well 
as many conferences there are basically I'll try okay. to go to. This year I'm doing a little less because I'm trying to do more fundraising uh, okay. for our sanctuary. So I'm working, gotcha. focusing on that more. But Okay. And how did you, now when you, so when you were in the early 80s, how old were you? Were you, you said a teenager? Uh, and, yeah, in high school. So your family, tell us a little bit how that transition occurred. Were they supportive? Or oh, yeah, everyone was supportive. You? Nobody was plant-based back then, so it was just really me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have any... Um, any other f- people references too much for plant-based. So it was just stuff I was reading. There was a few groups um, that would get together and have like uh, vegan potlucks. So there's mm-hmm. a few people. And you might know Victoria Moran. She's mm-hmm. a very prolific writer. And her and I were in Chicago together. So we became friends 30-something years ago and became mm-hmm. vegan uh, at the same time. But there was an internet, so that was a challenge. So I had to basically send away for different magazines and periodicals to try to learn. And there was a few books. Dr. McDougall had his um, his his books out back then, so that was that was a good help. Definitely. Yeah. So in Chicago, do you have any preferences of recommending people where to eat if they're visiting? Or oh, well, there's quite a few. There's Karen's Diner. There's the Chicago Diner. Um, there's Amit Tabool. Uh, it was another one. There's quite a few more and more are coming out there with um, with vegan options. Mm. And it's pretty easy to get vegan food anywhere you go now. Um, pretty much everybody has it. You know, you can always get salads and vegetables and baked potatoes and, and some sort of grain pretty much anywhere you go, whether it be pasta or brown rice. Right. So I'm curious because I, I know this evening you're going to be giving another lecture, which I'm so excited to attend. What type of advice do you give to your athletes? I mean, does it depend on, like, what type of activity they're doing or what their goals are? I mean, I'm just kind of curious. What is your your base where you would start? And then is there any specifics for, like, maybe runners versus someone who's a weightlifter, that type of thing? Sure. It it depends what their sport is since there's so many different sports, whether you're doing ultra-endurance where you might be taking in 5,000 calories in the morning just in a smoothie. Or somebody's just doing, you know, maybe they're a high jumper or, you know, a skier. So everyone's different. But for everybody, the name of the game is to maximize their their nutrient intake, particularly micronutrients. Not so much be focused on the macronutrients, the carbohydrates, the proteins, you know, um, and fats. Because most of those we get more than enough of. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is not only do we we get more than enough, but we get the wrong types. Mm. So I try to fine-tune that. So I tried the protein. We try to switch from animal to plant-based. And then the fats, we try to get away from the omega-6, the things that cause inflammation, and go to more omega-3s, and get away from trans fats and processed fats. And then the carbohydrates, we try to get away from processed uh, sugars and go more to fresh fruits and maybe starches like beans or squash and things like that. Wow. Okay. So what would you recommend, for example, let's say you have a young person, a high school student who's in your normal you know, volleyball, soccer, football, is there any specifics there for these younger children or younger teenagers to be focused on? Oh, sure. Most of them, you know, are taking in a lot of excitotoxins and stimulants and things that stimulate, you know, dopamine and pleasure centers in their brain. So they're really addicts already at high school for sure. I mean, they're addicts as children. Mm -hmm. So I try to slowly get them to neuroadapt and we slowly try to remove processed sugars and get them more fresh fruits. And then a lot of times I'll use dried fruits because they're a close, since the water's been removed, they're so high in sugar, they still get a little bit of a, a dopamine blast from that, but mm-hmm. it's healthier. Mm-hmm. So we try to get um, that way. And then soda pop, a lot of them aren't ready to transition off soda. So we'll use either natural soda for them or just sparkling water with juice or lemon to make a natural transition. Okay. And then the most important thing I try to get them off is dairy right off the bat. Because right. that's one of their biggest problems in terms of getting sluggishness and sinus problems and just lethargy in, in general. So I, it's so easy now with almond milk and cashew milk and all the different products that are out there. 
uh, especially all the different ice creams like So Delicious has so many good like cashew ice creams and things. Okay. So that's one of the things. But it's a very gentle process with kids because um, most kids, you know, are addicts already. So y- y- they don't have really the um, the mind makeup to understand how dangerous it is. So it's not easy for them to just completely cut it out. So it's just a transitional. What about so you have some kids like in their 20s. So oh. they're in college or they're coming out of college. You know, and they're resistant because they already think, you know, I'm adults, I know everything, and they're mm-hmm. they still think they're going to live forever. Do you have any specifics to address those? Maybe for parents like myself who has a, a resistant 23-year-old child. <laughs> you know, yeah. she knows the science. I've explained that. Um, but is there anything that you use or say mm-hmm. that can make Mainly help? I have them focus on trying to get a smoothie in every day. So if they could just do one smoothie a day, and I usually for them I'll either call it a smoothie or a shake. And they kind of like that if you say a shake. Um, and as long as I know they're getting a, a shake or a smoothie and where they're putting in fresh fruits and vegetables and maybe some you know, ground flaxseed um, and then maybe almond milk or coconut milk, then I know pretty well they get one in a day. That's a lot of nutrients they're getting. Mm-hmm. But for kids and younger people, they have to you know, kind of figure it out on their own. They're at a stage in their life where they don't want to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. So you have to give them different references and websites so they can learn. And they can say, oh, and they can come to the conclusion themselves. Mm-hmm. So they don't feel their parents or a doctor or some other practitioner is telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. And that's just, I think, part of being a teenager. You're kind of a little you know, rebellious and you don't want to be told what to do. You feel you're, you know, you're old enough to make your own decisions. Right. And part of my philosophy is not to ever try to coerce anyone that's not in my nature i'm just an educator so i provide information and you decide what to do with it so if you're drowning and i throw your life preserver you don't have to take it i'll give it to you but you don't have to take it mm-hmm. and i'm not offended if you don't take it because that's your right right so i just provide information i don't make a judgment okay that makes sense so is there anything special about women especially because i get a you know as a female family doc and then in general, uh, a lot of this, you know, our patients are going to be female, especially women in that menopausal range. So they got a lot of these hormonal issues occurring and just life transitions. You know, maybe they're becoming empty nesters for the first time. Do you have any suggestions or anything there? Maybe particular food types or what sure. they should be well, doing for women right off the bat. Their biggest problem is they're being influenced by the media, so mm-hmm. all their their body images are just really not realistic. I mean, for them, they're seeing, you know, and these are clients that I worked with myself, some of the biggest supermodels in the world and, and celebrities. This is not, number one, how they look at home. You know, I've been to celebrities' homes before where I didn't even recognize who that was. Uh-huh. So they don't look the way you see them on TV and in movies and in ads and things. That They have a lot of, you know, makeup and hair and lighting and all that type of stuff. But also, it's not realistic for women to think that they're going to be having a six-pack at 40. You can, but women are designed to have body fat. That's what nature designed you. If you look at Aboriginal people, people who are, live primitively, the women aren't stick thin. They don't have their abs, you know, ripped out like some professional volleyball player. So it's not healthy. Nature wants you to store fat for for survival. So most of the most of women's problems are in the media. Hmm. So when I when I have the oftentimes magazines or especially the the fashion industry will call me and ask me if I'd like to make a comment about something and they say I guarantee you don't want me to make a comment about fashion because fashion hurts women. Hmm. You know if you look at something like high heel shoes and tight fitting dresses and things that's not healthy for women. Right. You know that's not healthy. So wh- number one for women is they need to stop looking at the media and thinking this is how they're supposed to look because they're going to have a lot of psychological problems from that because they're going to keep beating themselves up saying, how come I can't look like that? 
you know, you don't realize how many people have liposuction and plastic surgery and are taking, you know, drugs to look the way they do and starving themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked with, with, with some of the biggest models in the world that were exercising eight hours a day and had anorexia and bulimia and everything. And now after their career is over, they're paying a huge price for that. Right. But that's what it took to look that way because it's not natural to look that way. Right. So that's the first thing I do. And then, of course, I'm moving them since they're trying to get um, their hormones back in balance. We're, we're trying to get things out of their diet that, that cause hormonal problems like refined sugar and animal products. Those would be the two things because, you know, you've got all the insulin-like growth factor that would be caused from animal consumption. And then you've got all the insulin uh, from refined products. So those are two of the biggest problems is, is right there, animal products and refined sugars. So I try to get them on as much of a plant-based diet as I can. I try to get them <clears throat> to get some um, ground flaxseed in their diet, which is really important, even if it's just a teaspoon a day. I mean, just a teaspoon a day is, is, is so much of the research has shown has been beneficial. Mm-hmm, especially through breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then is there any particular, I mean, how do you approach someone, let's say, who wasn't exercising? Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're sitting on the couch all day, and they, but they want to become less sedentary. Is, do you just start with walking? What do you, how do you build that for someone? Well, I teach them that, first of all, exercise, that term I rarely use. I call it movement because okay. exercise has really a negative connotation. Especially, you know, there's a lot of kids that would be picked last in gym class or not good at sports, so they, they've anchored in their brain that exercise or sports is something negative to them. And our body doesn't really require exercise per se. It just requires movement. Exercise can actually be dangerous for you. And if you sit all day and then you go to a gym and you sit again to get exercise, it's not really healthy. Mm. So an hour a day of exercise at a gym is not going to counter 23 hours of sedentary living. So what what I try to do is encourage people to be moving throughout the day as much as possible, and I want them to sit as little as possible. I'd like them to get a standing desk, and if they work at home, all they have to do is put their computer on their counter in their kitchen, and they're standing, or they just put a box on the counter and put their computer on that. Mm -hmm. If they're forced to sit at work, I'd like them to sit on exercise or physio ball, and this way they can get a little bit more hip mobility, and they're forced to sit up erect instead of having the back of their chair um, support them. So that's one of the things. And the other thing I just have them do is get a, a set of exercise bands and maybe some weights or some cans and then just keep those next to the couch and um, at their office and just try to sneak in a little movement every half hour, even if it's just a squat and a press or opening and closing the band, things like that. Just try to sneak stuff in and then try instead of being a viewer, be a doer. Instead of watching sports, go play sports. Go throw a ball with your child or your husband or your wife. Mm-hmm. You know, get out there and walk and go to the park and you know, do more recreational things like bowling or some sort of physical activity if you're going to rent bicycles or whatever. But we just, we live in such a sedentary society and automation and technology have really taken over our lives and they've ruined most people's lives because sitting is really, I mean, it's the new smoking. I mean, it's, it's so dangerous for you. I mean, your, your lymphatic system is really shut off uh, since your, your lymph system doesn't have a pump. It relies on deep, deep movement, bending, squatting, twisting, pushing, pulling to move lymph fluid. Unless you're getting deep tissue massage or, or doing diaphragmic breathing, you're not really moving lymph. And that lymph is your, your paramedics, your EMT, your fire department, your police department. It's your immune system. Mm-hmm. So movement is the easiest way to get your lymph system and your immune system healthy and strong. Hmm. That's fascinating. And then as far as for men, maybe they're entering you know, that middle age bracket do you have any specifics for them other than the same thing for the women or sure for men you know oftentimes they're running into prostate issues 
and they're running to erectile dysfunction and heart disease. You know, women are too with heart disease, but I really tried very, very hard with men to try to get them to slowly start adding in as much fiber and plant food as they can in their diet and really reducing that's that animal fat in their diet, which, which is one of the main causes of the prostate issues. And of course, erectile dysfunction is really just the warning signs for, for heart disease. So once you start talking about that and they understand that this is heart disease, it's like high blood pressure, you know, these, you're getting occlusions in these arteries and that's causing, you know, impeded blood flow. And once the blood flow is impeded, whether it's in the carotid artery to your, then to your brain, you could have a stroke or you have, you know, cerebral vascular deficiency, you get like a, almost like a dementia. It's the same thing with impotence, you know, you're not getting enough blood flow. So I really try to work on circulation and talking about the importance in fiber and a low fat but it's still good fats in the diet, but a low-fat diet. Mm, okay. And I'm just curious, going back to the women, you had mentioned the media, they need to be uh, avoiding those magazines that are being so harmful. Do you have, are there any magazines or media that women maybe could look to for positive imaging, um, positive messages? Not so much magazines, because then again, they're, they're looking outside of themselves to get, okay. you know, uh, accolades okay. when need to just basically take care of themselves. It's like I never have my clients get on a scale because, number one, it's, it's just an artificial gravitational force that's being measured. So I don't know when somebody says they lost five pounds, well, did you lose five pounds of muscle and bone? Did you lose water? Mm -hmm. I really don't know. And they're, they're measuring their self-worth. They jump on the scale and they lose two pounds and they go, yay. Right. So it's like when I used to lecture for some of these weight loss groups, Everybody, and I won't mention which ones, but they would start the meeting off by everyone weighing themselves. Mm -hmm. And if you lost weight, they, everyone would cheer. And if you didn't, you know, it would be like almost a somber state in there. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I just don't really have um, women look at celebrities or models or athletes because it's unrealistic. But is there a magazine or something that will help? you know, give a positive message saying this is how to take care of yourself. I don't really think so because no. most of the magazines, even if they're plant-based, always show these beautiful almost supermodels on the yeah. cover. And they're always glamorizing that you're supposed to look this particular way and everyone has makeup. You know, if most women didn't wear makeup or men didn't wear makeup, people would look totally different. Right. You know, it's not very natural for people to be having, you know, lipstick and eyeliner and all that stuff. It's fine to have, but right. that's just people just – that's. That's not how Aboriginal people look. Right. You know, and women are, you know, their body changes as they get older, and yet they're still always comparing themselves to younger and younger women. Yeah. And, you know, working here where I am now, that's actually very true. Um, and I had a statement someone told me here, which when I moved to Boca from Colorado, um, someone I, who I just met in the elevator is a gentleman with his dog. He's like, oh, are you new here? And I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, you, you don't look Boca. I'm like, what does that mean? Right. <laughs> I think that might be a compliment, but I'm not really sure. And so um, I was like, okay. And, uh, yeah, it was really interesting um, living in a, in a place from going from rural Colorado to where you have people working, you know, blue-collar jobs and out on the, in the oil fields and the natural gas to here nothing against that but it's just it's very different it's a sure. uh, a much more um focus on the external yeah and which is fine if that's what somebody wants but as mm -hmm. long as they're doing work on the internal too right that's yeah. the thing there has to be somewhat of a balance Definitely. it's kind of like you know i work with chef aj in los angeles and we have a, a program ultimate weight loss and what's very interesting is that everybody in the program even though it's called ultimate weight loss i tell them it's really ultimate health and fitness mm -hmm. It's ultimate love and compassion because the weight's going to come off, the excess weight, as you get healthier. 
but all they ever talk about is losing weight. And I say, you know, if losing weight was really the secret and made you happy, well, then we could just model anorexics. They'd be our poster children. Mm -hmm. But they don't seem to be too happy, and they don't seem to be too healthy. But they sure are thin, <laughs> right? Exactly right. Yeah, so it's really not going to solve your problem. It's like when I work with clients that, that get gastric bypass. If they haven't had any work on what's been in between their ears and changed their thinking, Having a gastric bypass, they still need to medicate now with all the problems. Mm -hmm. So now are they going to reach for drugs? Right. So they've never addressed what caused the obesity. Right. That's the challenge. You know, and the other thing, too, with the gastric bypass, and, and that's, again, that's a personal choice, but they do need to work on the, the mental aspect because after they have the surgery and the surgeon's done with them, they fall back into the laps of their primary care doctor. So what we would have is these individuals who would go back to eating, as much as they could, 30% gain their weight back. And then we also have, you know, the side effects of there's vitamin deficiencies. Now they're, they're very anemic, so we do an iron transfusions, and they're having, um, you know, scarring in turn the internal parts, you know, or they'll have ulcerations. And so we have people now are on chronic pain medications, and they're not absorbed. I mean, it's just a disaster after disaster. There are some people who are successful, but um, I have not found that to be, a beneficial thing because they do they say they go see a psychologist but they don't do i don't think a thorough vetting <laughs> and treatment from that standpoint i'm curious about you had mentioned your the cognitive work that you've done can you mm -hmm. explain more of that how you got into that and what that's really about that's fascinating sure well you know that was probably 25 years ago when i started the brain building classes i mean i was working in retirement homes teaching all sorts of classes in general and lectures but i would see that basically the retirement homes would just have banjo joe coming once a week and bingo and cards and that's all they did and i wanted to put the seniors back in school because i always said the worst thing that you can do is retire your brain and your body and so I said, well, let's start creating these brain-building classes to put them back in school. Mm -hmm. So not only did I create actually brain-building activities and challenges, but we did the same thing physically. So I would actually take like an industrial bubble machine and put it on a table with wheels, have all the seniors get in a circle around it, put on classical music and give them chopsticks and let the bubble machine go. So it was like a Lawrence Welk party. <laughs> and with all this classical music, they'd be catching, trying to catch the bubbles with their chopsticks, which was a very fine coordination movement. Uh -huh. they, were, they were moving like Tai Chi movements because they were always bending and reaching and squatting. And if you didn't have the bubbles or the chopsticks there, they'd never do that for 20 minutes. So it was little things like that. And then we did a lot of nutritional stuff, obviously plant-based eating. We, I always focus on different nutraceuticals like B12 or DHA or ginkgo biloba, things that increase circulation. Um, B12 and DHA for the myelin sheath and, of course, for normal brain functioning, things like that. So a lot of hydration. We talked about how important it was as soon as they wake up in the morning to be hydrated. You know, they're hypovolemic. Their, their blood is thick in the morning, and so we need to immediately thin it, and then we try to get it moving. So a lot of things like that. And even with my athletes, I still do a lot of cognitive drills with balls and balloons and things like that, and I'm asking them questions when I'm throwing a ball back and forth. So they're, they're focusing on two different things. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that is very interesting because um, being family practice and when I was in Colorado having to do nursing home rounds, the water intake is so difficult. Um, but I think that's fabulous work. I mean, it really is true. My great-grandparents lived to be in their 90s, and they were playing dominoes well into the end. And my husband's grandparents lived to be 104 and 102. Um, they were married over 80 years. And, I mean, they would play mahjong. And they would feel that, which is basically like a domino, an Asian domino, for those who aren't 
familiar with the the Filipino way, and um, but they'd feel the bottom of the down the the mahjong the the ta- or the brick or whatever you want to call it, and they would they were so quick and they would play, but they played for money. Let me tell you, this was serious. Like if you didn't have the money in your pocket, you don't don't even sit at the table. But it was really funny how quick they were and how that would just really it was their element. It was amazing to see our crossword puzzles for people sure. and. Um, absolutely. That's... Even if you take like seniors, if you just give, have them close their eyes and you give them a bag of coins, just different types of coins and have them feel it. Mm. So they got to feel what's the penny, what's the dime, what's the quarter, what's the half dollar, you know, things like that. It's just, it's like the same thing when I use aromatherapy, it's working different parts of their senses that were shut off. So you're trying to work on their weakness, basically. You're trying to always work, focus on, on whatever their weakness is. And for seniors, I would always have them use their non-dominant hand. So I would start out by having them write their name 10 times every morning with their non-dominant hand. And many of them could not even pick up the pencil or pen with their non-dominant hand. They're, you know, their, their, their coordination and their hands didn't work. But after months and months of doing it, they could write their name just fine with their non-dominant hand. It's almost like an occupational therapist meets a, a neuro, <laughs> right, you know, right. like some type of neurologist. That's fascinating. So it's almost similar to when you get little kids and you're buying them all these different toys and right. really pushing those brains to do different things and language and yeah, and such. you know, when you, you the dendrites, the the branch chain projections that go from the neurons and they connect basically metaphorically to one another, and that's what allows impulses to go, and that's how you think. When you're a child, those dendrites are growing so much that the brain actually prunes them. It gets rid of them there so much. But mm-hmm. as you get older, um, they don't grow very much because the reason they're growing when you're a child is everything is brand new. Mm-hmm. Everything you see, you feel, you touch, you taste, you smell is new to you, so it stimulates the dendritic growth. But as you get older, there's not much new. Hmm. And by the time you're 60 and 70, there's not really anything new. And that's the problem with retirement homes is that the environment doesn't change either. You see the same people. It's the same meals. It's the same stuff. So when I'd go in there, you know, we would do field trips to health food stores, get them out, you know, try to get them out of there, and then just do different things that would just stimulate their brains. That's Hmm. all. Because there was – I can't remember which country it is, but they actually bring college students into nursing homes or even uh, preschool kids into nursing homes, it's fascinating right. to watch. I mean, they just light up. Mm-hmm. Or even, I remember when my, my great-grandmother, she was 93. I was pregnant with my, my second child. And we had bought her, she had some dementia, but it wasn't uh, Alzheimer's, but certainly some dementia-type qualities. We brought her a baby, like a little doll. To see her, I mean, I've never seen the experience anything like that. It was incredible to see her just light up and just love and just talk to the baby. And then, when, of course, when I brought my baby, she was like, whoa. Right. <laughs> and um, really amazing stuff. I mean, that just fascinates me. It's kind of like the work we're doing here with our clinical therapist. I mean, in family practice, you know, it's <sighs> – you're dealing from newborn to 104, I think, has been my oldest patient. And so to see, you know, a patient, one that comes in, you're checking blood pressure and diabetes, and the next one is your well baby visit for a two-month-old. And so you're going from extreme. You never really have the time to use those type of activities or talk to parents or to elderly and understand even the psychological component or the even the organic brain 
growth and stuff. I mean, that just so fascinates me. I mean, there's so much yeah. more we could do, I think. Oh, there's so much more. Because these seniors are, you know, they, they had a very, very productive life. And they mm -hmm. always, all the seniors that I worked with, at least, always told me the story that then when they were young, they carried their brother or their sister on their back to school in the rain. And they all walked to school. They all lived active lifestyles. Everything, their sports or activity were always physical things. Mm -hmm. They didn't really, some of them didn't even have TV. Right. And so that most of the seniors that I saw were very healthy. But as I, I, I you know, the last couple of years, more and more in geriatrics, the more and more people would come in into retirement homes that really should have been in nursing homes. Mm. So they weren't quite as healthy anymore. Right. And most of them ate whole foods. You know, they, they might have ate animal products, but they ate whole foods at least. Right. And, and, they, and the main thing to me, the, the, the greatest saving grace for them was they were very loving and compassionate people. Mm. When a barn burned down, they helped their neighbors. Right. They were always there. They had some aspect of religion, and they were always caring people. Whereas today, I think we've moved away from that. We've moved away from being loving and caring, which is the core of everything that I teach is on love and compassion. Right. And, and that's curious. Is I, I definitely can see that you have a breakdown of a community. Your, your families are now scattered mm -hmm. very quickly. And it's always refreshing to see families that even multi-generations that live in the same area. Sure. Um, you know, for example, John and Lee, who you're going to go to Progressive Self-Defense Systems and, and do your talk later tonight. Lee, is, there's three generations of family. They all live in Boca. And they have dinner every Sunday together. And they're, they're so much fun. I've been invited. They bring in people. I mean, I've adopted them as my second family. But it's just so fun to see that, that they have that connection and that support. And they're there the moment that you need them. And that's so, so very important that we have walked away from. It's very true. When you look at the blue zones where people have lived the longest, and it's not only longevity, but it's the least disability. Mm -hmm. They have the least disability. One of the key components, aside from plant-based eating and, and activity, very active lifestyle, is that social component. Mm -hmm. They have they live in extended families, and they're very close. Wow. And, it, and, and also, in most of the retirement homes that I worked in, most of the caregivers there, especially Asian and Filipino, would always tell me, John, they'd say, we, we would never put our family here. We live with our family and extended mm -hmm. families. Oh, well, I've, I've been married almost 24 years. And so my, <laughs> my husband's Filipino. He was born in the United States. But when he was growing up, his grandparents, his uncles, his aunts, everyone lived with them at some point. Um, so in our home, we had my grandmother lived with us for eight years. Then I had a cousin that lived with us for a year. And then my in-laws lived with us for six. So now where everyone's leaving, it's like we're like – what do we do with all this time and this empty nesting? Because literally everyone, we've had so many generations. And what was really fun about it is that my kids now, I'm hoping that I have groomed them to understand that they are my retirement plan. So I will need to come and live with them as they, I'm like, just make sure you have space for mom and dad. <laughs> Four months out of the year for each of you. Sure. <laughs> well, that, I think that's a very important component that gets overlooked in terms of, lo of longevity mm. is that family. Everyone's always looking to the diet. Right. And what's the mystical magical ingredient? And it's not in the diet. Yeah, sure, plant-based is key, but it's also the love and compassion and the connection that you have with one another. Mm -hmm. We build walls in our society instead of building bridges. Mm. And I talk about that quite a bit in the Pillars of Health, that we need to learn to, to, to put our, our drawbridge down. Right and have ex and, and extend to one another, and not only family and friends, but to people that we don't even know. Right. I mean, that's the whole idea about volunteering mm -hmm. is just to go out there and be a good person and do good for humanity in general, mm -hmm. the animals and the planet, etc. I mean, that's why I became a vegan is for all those reasons. It mm -hmm. wasn't it wasn't really for me. Right. It was originally for the animals. I didn't want to cause them any harm or to the environment. 
Right. Yeah, speaking of environment, I mean, there's just so much information that's coming out now. I think that will be a very motivating factor for the younger people as well. Right, because it's their future, and they're starting to see that, hey, there might not be any of these forests left. Mm-hmm. There might not be any of this left. So mm-hmm. I think they're getting you know, very motivated. Even, even Dr. McDougall has mentioned that quite a bit in his lectures now that since he has grandkids, he's very concerned about their future. Mm-hmm. So he's been more of an environmentalist now, which oh, is wow. very exciting. Yeah. Really? Wow, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. There's just so much. I mean, and, you know, I went to Washington, D.C. It's been about a month ago now, I think. And I was invited by some physicians because the American Medical Association has only about 15 percent represents about 15 percent of of physicians in the United States. And there's almost 900,000 of us. And, um, you know, I get dues sent to me every year. Like it's like $700 or something. Pay your dues. I'm like, I haven't been a member since medical school. Um, and they still send me the jam and the journal, but they're not getting their money because if you're running an organization and you're sending out your magazine, you want people to pay for it, you think you would know who's an active member and who's not. Um, but what was interesting is they're very active in Congress. And so there's a new group that were kind of a grassroots movement by other physicians, multiple smaller groups that have now come under this one umbrella, um, Practicing Physicians of America. We went to Congress and we were eliciting the ears of some folks that would be open to hearing, we want to be part of this change in, in our health care. This is a great opportunity of a change of administration. You know, they want to be something radically different. Well, we, we are in the trenches with the patients. We know what we need. We know what we should be doing. And what was interesting was I did, there was, uh, we met um, all together, and there was maybe three, four hours of, of uh, speeches, probably closer to three hours. But we had three congressmen come and speak to us. And the first one got up in front of us while I was doing a Facebook live feed. So this has been seen over thousands of times now, this, this, this discussion. And it's going to be disseminated to thousands of physicians that we represent. And he said, what you're going to have to do, I'm going to tell you something that's really hard, going to be hard for you to listen. But this is the truth. The amount of money that you spent on your plane ticket here is probably what you're going to need to donate, have a fundraiser for your congressman if you want them to listen and help you. So basically, he told us what we already knew was you're going to have to pay Congress to make you listen. And I just, beyond the fact that I want to throw my phone at him, and I did really bit my tongue because I was like, you know, I'm thinking, well, why don't you look at it this way? Why don't you actually see an opportunity to reach out to a group of physicians when we have money, and if you help us, we probably would naturally just give you money. So I think that would be the natural byproduct of that. We tend to have a little bit more disposable income, and uh, but you know, be a radical and change things and and do that. So that you know, that's uh, yeah, it, that was a really big challenge for me. Is is it, it has to be a grassroots efforts. I think more people like you and and leading that way. But it was really quite a quite an eye opener for me to go. And, and actually have a physician tell me. And then a, another physician came and spoke to us who was a, a physician who just got elected. Um, and when I asked him about bringing nutrition to the forefront of, you know, really changing our, our health care, I mean, if you want to turn the tide, you start change, feeding people differently. Things are going to change. We're going to save money. Looking at our kids' school, you know, program, food program, lunch program. And he goes, oh, no, you don't want, you don't want big government to be involved with that. He said, this needs to be at a local and state level. I was like, I'm just shaking my head. I was like, you know, no, these policies are started by you in Washington. And um, so I, I think we're either going to have to elect our own or just make it such a demand, consumer demand, that things change from that standpoint. But 
it was just getting back to we do we need to get more involved and connected with each other and everything that goes yeah, on yeah there's a lot of work that needs to be done for mm-hmm. sure so i mean how do you do it i mean how do you stay motivated to continue because i'm just i after talking to you and all that you do it's like you're going 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 how do you recharge yourself well, I mean, I, I'm always thinking, you know, it's like Mother Teresa said, the smallest deed done is far greater than the largest intention. Mm. So as long as I'm doing little bits of good everywhere, I mean, that's that's what I try to do. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing major things, I don't think. I'm just out there kind of sprinkling the magical pixie dust everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I it's not easy. You know, if you look at people like Dr. Michael Greger from nutritionfacts.org. I mean, he always says, you know, I mean, he's on a plane all the time. He says, that's not healthy, and he doesn't get a lot of sleep. So right. a lot of times when you're out there and you're you're a presenter and you're going from town to town, it's not always the best lifestyle, mm. but you do the best to keep your diet as, as plant-based and tight as you can. Try to get the sleep and hydration you need and, you know, make sure that you have, um, you know, some downtime. Mm. So, I mean, I like to go outside. I like walking. I like, you know, doing some sort of physical activity especially outside mm-hmm. i don't like to really be inside at gyms and things like that right so and then and i also like going to conferences that i attend so it's not always just teaching mm-hmm. but i like to go to a lot of animal rights and environmental conferences and i think it's nice to see what other people are doing and getting inspired that way i'm curious where would you recommend maybe someone starting to if they want to get involved with the you know more of the understanding the vegan movement itself because oh, okay. you know when I um, transitioned our diet five years ago with the family and everybody that was a fun a fun time um, I didn't understand all this all I saw were you know when I heard the word vegan it was like the extreme the ones that made the videos the ones that right. you know and that there's a it's a it's a it's not something that if you don't understand that or feel that way that it's an immediate like i want no part of that so but as the diet you know transition occurred we became more aware of what's going on and you become more sympathetic to that movement and part of that movement so i'm curious where would someone go to actually learn um about what maybe what you're doing or more along the lines of the actual vegan movement and because of why they're so passionate about what they do. Sure. So I've taught at Vegetarian Summerfest for about 22 years now, and that's in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And that's usually around the first week in July. It's always a Wednesday through Sunday every year. So um, that's probably the best all-around conference. I mean, I, obviously, I've taught there 22 years. So that is fitness. That's plant-based nutrition. And then that's animal rights, and that's the environment. So ultimately, that's veganism right there. Hmm. So that has the best speakers in the world. That I mean, you're there from Wednesday through Sunday. You can come in on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday if you want. But that's probably the best well-rounded conference. Okay. Um, the animal rights conference that usually is in L.A. and Virginia is another good one. It's more environmental and animal rights and a little bit of veganism in terms of diet, plant-based. Hmm. Not as much, but that's a good conference too. Okay. And there's tons of them. I mean, we go from... Veg fest to veg fest, they're all over the country. You just kind of have to look them up. Okay, because I know there's one in Golden. I spoke at last year. That yeah, was really that, fun. oh, that one's great too. So yeah. yeah, the one in Golden, I've taught that uh, a few years, and I usually have a booth there. Um, that one is actually well rounded too, because that's the plant based, that's the environment, and that's animals, mm-hmm. and that's a two day one. Mm-hmm. So that one they usually get, I think, three to five thousand people. Mm-hmm. That's a really good one too. Yeah, and Dr. Greger spoke there last year too. So yeah, they always fun. have a really they they work hard, and in uh, Peter Swiss store food yes. on it, they are really great workers. Very nice. Is there any documentaries or anything like that that you would sure. suggest watching? Well, I think Earthlings is probably the best. And it's interesting, Earthling Sean Amundsen, who's the producer, is a client of mine. And when he first came to me, he came to me 165 pounds, six foot two. 
And we talked about, you know, kind of have a, a surfer build, ectomorph tall and thin. And so basically he wanted to be the best representative he could in the vegan movement. So I built him up to 215 pounds wow. of solid Frankenstein muscle. <laughs> so, I mean, he was incredible. I mean, it, he was literally, when we would go to a gym, he would do the same amount of weights that, that the people that had maybe another 75 pounds on him, bodybuilders were doing. Okay. So he, phenomenal. So um, he did Earthlings, which is nicknamed the Veganator, which is probably the greatest animal rights movie ever. And then he also came out with Unity, which is uh, – it's not really part two of Earthlings, but it's it's basically more on, the, on what's happening to humanity in general, people to their spirit and their soul. So that's a wonderful movie. Um, Cowspiracy, I think, is excellent in terms of the environment, showing what's going on with the environment. And then I was just in a new one. I haven't seen it yet. I think it's been out a couple months, but Eating You Alive. Yes. Um, people keep telling me. They say, oh, I saw you, I saw you, and I haven't, been in, I haven't <laughs> seen it, but – I just don't have the I've time to watch twice. it, but I heard it's really good. People you know, have been saying they really love it. Marilee Jacobs and Paul David, they, so it's funny, m one of my friends is in it that works as a cardiologist in Grand Junction, and she just happened yeah. to mention that she was in this documentary. I was like, what do you mean you're in a documentary? What, you wouldn't tell me? She goes, oh, well, yeah, it was really cool. And this Mary Lee Jacobs and Paul David Kinnamer. And I was like, that's awesome. She goes, oh, you would love Mary Lee. So I'm going to introduce you on Facebook. So we became friends on Facebook a year before it was even released or maybe eight, nine months. And um, so then I moved down here and they did. They were my very second podcast, Mary Lee and Paul David. And um, they said, you need to come back to Denver and answer questions. You could be one of our uh, co-host when we do our screening in Denver. I was like, absolutely. <laughs> so I got to meet them in person. So that was really fun. But um, yeah, it was very good. It was very good. I was excited to see. Did you, so you saw the movie? I, twice. Oh, oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Everyone keeps coming up to me and saying, you're in it. You're in it. And I said, okay, well, yeah, at some point. <laughs> we saw it originally um, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine in Naples. Um, my daughter saw it. And then with me, because she drove down to Colorado to hear from me. And then we saw it again in Denver. And oh, okay. I, I made all the family come. So, yeah, well, good. Yeah, it was very good. I was really impressed. I like their their spin from showing the doctors talking about it and saying, you know, and people who have changed the healthcare changes and stuff from that side of it, the people who work with people. That was really cool. I really like that. And um, he was just on the Today Show, Paul David was. That was really cool. So, um, and you had mentioned, because I'm going to get some questions about this, you mentioned you took this gentleman who was 165 pounds mm -hmm. to 250 pa 215 pounds mm -hmm. of muscle. Solid muscle. How, how did you do that? <laughs> I'm curious because I have some muscly teenagers that, you know, young men that would love to hear about sure. that. Well, Sean had such a good work ethic, and he was just a little bit under 40. And, you know, by the time he turned 40, he wanted to be the best representative he could because he was like me. He's a very compassionate, loving man. But he kind of had a tall, ectomorph, thin build. He didn't have much muscles. And, you know, he could barely bench press 35 pounds in each hand. And after, you know, I was done training him, I stopped him at about 100 pounds in each hand. Wow. Um, because I just didn't want him to have any shoulder problems and things like that. Um, but basically it was just, you know, it was just the workout that I designed for him and I would physically train him. And then we just, his diet was was obviously 100% plant-based because he was already vegan when I met him. But we, you know, we, we did use a lot of different shakes and, um, you know, I used plant-based um, protein for him. And the only reason I did that is because for certain athletes, when they are done working out, they get, you know, they, they lose their appetite. 
and they can't they don't want to eat that much so i had to get a lot of calories in them mm. and so he just what he didn't want to eat tons of food so the only way for me to do it was to do a smoothie and i would use some plant-based um you know powders in there and you know flaxseed and you know all that type of stuff so that helped him and he was eating you know two to three meals a day but the problem is when you're gaining that much muscle you're if you eat a lot of what you should be eating is fresh vegetables you get very full because they're so high in fiber and water so if i don't blend things then um it they get fat they get full too fast mm. so i have to do a lot of blended uh, drinks for him and like blended smoothies and then blended soups are really important too but you don't need a ton of protein. You know, your muscles are only about 22% protein. They're over 70% water. So I'm more concerned about my athletes having electrolyte problems or not getting enough water. So the only thing that you need a little bit more protein for is, you know, obviously if you, if you had an injury or you were burned um, or you're doing hard physical labor that's tearing apart muscle tissue, you can still get it in your diet. But some people just don't like to eat that much food. Hmm. But to be that big, 215 pounds, is not that natural to be working out that. So you have to supplement it somehow. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That is fascinating. Well, I'll tell you, this has been, a, I mean, I've taken almost an hour of your time, and I appreciate everything. So is there any final words of advice that you would like to give to someone who might be listening? Sure. I, uh, you know, get on to a, you know, plant-based diet as soon as you can, a low-fat, you know, but good-fat plant-based diet. And make sure you get as much movement as you can throughout the day. Uh, you know, live an active lifestyle. And then most importantly, make sure that you live a life filled with love and compassion. Be as kind and loving to yourself and to your friends and family. And then most importantly, to people that you don't even know, mm -hmm. you know, send that love. Because when you meet people that aren't nice to you, the antidote is kindness and love. Mm -hmm. It's not to be mean to them and angry to them because that's how they got to be not so nice. Right. So you want to give them love and compassion, and that's ultimately lighting their candle. So you're basically lighting their candle, and hopefully as they get healthier and fitter emotionally and physically, they'll go light somebody else's candle that needed help too. That's absolutely wonderful advice because it's your, you may be the only kind thing that they see. Exactly. And so um, you need to be aware of that. So your websites are johnpierre.com and livingwithharmony.org, mm -hmm. and the books are Pillars of Health. And strong, savvy, safe. Mm -hmm. And then you're working with your sanctuary project. Is there a specific name for the sanctuary that you guys have? Come it's up? just living with harmony. Just living with mm -hmm. harmony. Okay. And then of course, projectchildsave.org. Right, and it's save S A V E. Oh, save. Because there is one that's safe. safe. But okay. It's S A V E, and that's Ty Ritter's group, and just a wonderful group to to donate to because all the money goes to rescuing these children. None of the um, none of the volunteers take a penny of it. Wow. And uh, I've been on that website, and it's it's a powerful message that they're doing, what they're doing, and I want to be part of that. So I know offline we'll talk more about that. But thanks again. And I like to end the podcast with acknowledgement. And so I always like to say thank you to the guests, one, for coming and sharing your message, but two, for just thanks for all the people that you helped that maybe they haven't had the opportunity to say thank you. And um, I think those who give a lot need to also um, hear that and understand how what a powerful thing that you're doing and um people are thankful and thank you thank so, you for having me you're welcome mm -hmm.